where I belong. All right, guys, thank you for tuning in to episode 18 of Where I Belong. I am your host, David Corbo, and I am here with Andrew Steiner, stand up comedian and co host of the Weird Ball podcast. What's going on, Andrew? Not too much. You like that intro? Sounds yeah, relatively great. smooth. It's professional. <sighs> I'm supposed to do music with these things, uh, but, you know, we'll figure that out as it goes. Mm-hmm. Andrew, I just watched you do, what was that, seven minutes? I think it was 10, but maybe was I, it 10 minutes? Maybe it was less. I don't Give or take. Know. Uh, and it was awesome, man. That was great. Thanks. I haven't been to a lot of stand-up shows, uh, to be perfectly honest. I've been to a couple in Atlantic City, mm-hmm. and then I, uh, I went and saw Rogan in Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing Christina Pazinski soon. Me and the wife are going. Nice. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Yeah. I love her, man. I love uh, your mom's house podcast. They're uh, they're they're great. Her and Tom Segura. But that was great, man. Thanks. You did an excellent job. Thank uh, you. Uh, you know, just the cadence, the timing, the smoothness of it all. You know, you seem. How long have you been doing this? Five years. It shows, man. It shows. Uh, so five years. Mm-hmm. What got you into stand up? I mean, I imagine you got some heroes. I mean, I. Honestly, Rogan, mm. Rogan's podcast, it was kind of just like seeing these guys hang out. And I'm like, oh, I, f- I feel like I'm like those people. Maybe mm. th- maybe they should be my colleagues. Right. You know, that's why I do the podcast. I'm like, maybe I could just make some friends who think like me. Yeah, that would be decent enough. Yeah. Um. Do you remember your first time five years ago? Where Where were you? What was that like? What did you do? Well, I mean, I guess I count. Um, I start counting up from when I started doing it regularly, like a few times a week. So, so, um, I think I went to this mic in Nyack, maybe, maybe that was the first time or maybe this place, uh, do you know the stand in New York city? The stand in, no, can't it's, say that I'm familiar with it. It's a great club. They recently shut for the summer to, to relocate, but they had a smaller venue called the standing room. And before this, it's in Long Island city. And before that it was the laughing devil comedy club and uh they that's where i did my first mic probably what was that like man i i mean as an outsider as someone who's peripherally you know checking out the scene it looks fucking terrifying yeah i mean it wasn't that scary honestly it it got scarier for a while the longer I was doing it because of the stakes you know it's like it's like when you start investing into something and you're like oh my god I might go bankrupt I might ruin my whole life with this investment like that's when it got scary it, in the beginning it was like this is fun this is cool this is an adventure and like sometimes I get nerves but like I didn't know how bad I was and I didn't know how how the odds were stacked against me and all this stuff and like you know but once you start really investing the time once you start you know, having people look at you as, uh, you know, fans, once you have fans, right. Once mm-hmm. you have, uh, that kind of a system going on and things kind of get real, I, I imagine that's when things get a little heavy. Yeah. I mean, now, now it's not that heavy cause I have like the mental game kind of locked down after years of not, not locked down. Obviously I'm still going to have moments of like self doubt, but, but there were a few years when I was living in New York city where it's just like, there's so many good comics and I wasn't necessarily one of them or at least people didn't view me that way. So it's like, you start looking at yourself like that and then you start getting down on yourself and there's not necessarily opportunities for good stage time. There's you get on occasional shitty bar shows where there's barely an audience or you're at open mics where everyone feels, it feels like a lot of people are rooting for you to fail. So Mm. it's hard to get better. 
Um, so I think I kind of, I kind of rounded that corner when I moved out of the city a little bit and got into this scene in, um, in Rockland and Westchester and, and, uh, yeah, the Hudson Valley again. Um, so where people kind of seemed to root for me and then going on the road was even better, even more of a boon for confidence because you got, you got people who are like, Oh, you're from New York. Wow. You must be good. And, and when people root for me, I, I tend to do my best work. What is that like going on tour? Where have you been? Um, I've been all, all over the South, you know, like, um, I, last December I, I, I drove down to Philly, then, uh, all the way to like Richmond and, um, down to Raleigh and, and Wilmington and fucking Charleston, Florida, fucking New Orleans, um, Atlanta. How big does the, I mean, I can only imagine being here. We're in Middletown, New York right now. We just stepped out of a little brewery called Taps. The, the demographic, the, the audience, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's gotta be a dramatic difference coming from Taps, Middletown, for example, Mm -hmm. to like Charleston. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a little more conservative down there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, Middleton, upstate New York in some places are, is kind of like the South. Yeah, it is a little conservative up here. Yeah. It's kind of the boonies. Anywhere where you get giant open, you know, fields and, and dudes wearing camouflage. Yeah, exactly. It's, vir- it's going to be pretty conservative. I can see that. Yeah, hunter culture. What is it that really pulls you in? Because I have some ideas, and I'm sure a lot of people have some ideas, but I think it's interesting to hear it from the perspective of a comedian. What What's the, what are the, not the values, but what are the attributes to getting on stage, to to getting laughs, to executing something, you know, in, in, in a way that makes you happy? What, what, what is that? What's the draw to that? what makes me want to go on stage yeah what keeps you getting back on stage i mean i just love creating in any form you know and even more so when i can see what's working and what's not not working immediately like that's beautiful i used to write like liter like short stories and i tried to write a novel and i wrote poetry and like that was fun creatively but like you don't get that immediate um you know what's working you know yeah that feedback Instantly, right? Because you're standing in front of these people. They're either going to laugh or they're not going to laugh. And you could tell that right away. And there's probably even subtleties beyond the laughter or the lack of laughter, Mm -hmm. right? So if suddenly people in the crowd start turning away and focusing on something else, Mm -hmm. if they're pulling their phone out, you know what I mean? Or if they're really engaged and they're really looking at you and you can sense the buildup on, you know, as far as their attention towards you goes as a, as a joke is building up, you know, that they're engaged and that you've captured them. That's probably a, yeah. And it's a great feeling when the room is electric and it's because of you. Oh man, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, you know, it's kind of like being the, what do you call that? The orchestrator, not the orchestrator, the maestro, the conductor, the conductor, the conductor yeah, of, uh, of of what's going on. So you've, uh, I mean, you recently did a show, uh, and I don't, I don't know if I'm mistaken, but Brody Stevens opened for you, right? Or 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 Brody Stevens was the headliner, yeah, yeah, and you and several other people opened for him, yeah, yeah. How was that? That was amazing. I mean, Brody, Brody is an inspiration in a number of ways. Like I, I. I personally enjoy comedy most when there's 
an element of chaos going on. Mm, you know, okay, yeah. Where it's not all uh, written, rehearsed material that the comedian's amazing at making seem like it's off the top of their head. I, I really like it when there's actually that element of like a good chunk of the stuff is just in the moment. Yeah. I like that, that feeling. And Brody's a master of that. He's one of the few people who can really pull that off and make it consistently funny. And he, of course, has jokes, but he uses those as like stepping stones between um, between his riffs and whatever he's doing. Yeah, there's structure, and then the things that glue the structure together are the kind of ad-libbing or the, you know, for lack of a better term, the freestyle moments where he's just feeling the crowd and he's working the crowd and he's... He's uh he's just going with what feels right in that moment. That's a you know I'm I'm entirely envious of that. When I see people that can just kind of uh, off the cuff, yeah, you know what I mean. It's to me it's uh because there is something about there's one thing to write a joke mm-hmm. and to write a joke and then execute that joke and it comes off the way that you had planned and rehearsed, which is excellent. Yeah. But then those things where somebody's just in the zone, this kind of a flow state where they're just dropping bombs on you and and suddenly the show might even go in a direction where the comedian didn't even intend to it. You know what I mean? But it doesn't matter because you're heading down that road with them and they're killing it in that moment and it's entirely off the cuff. You know, and I guess with that, I mean, I'm sure to some extent that's natural. Yeah. But to a a huge extent, that's just, that's just being comfortable up there. That's just repetition, you know, putting in the work, doing the, doing the sets, uh, working the crowd until you're at a point where this is home. Yeah, it's that. But for for me, honestly, it's a lot of it's uh it's brain chemistry. Hmm. Which is like a like like right now I, I didn't like that set because I felt my my brain felt like a fucking uh wrapper, like a tinfoil wrapper, like a used up tissue or something. Like I like just cuz I was going get, getting into a migraine, you know, like mm. I didn't feel like I could just I get this, sometimes I get into a flow state where I can just like riff or get into weird voices or like come up with crazy, crazy imagery. And like, I, I couldn't, I I couldn't cause I I just felt like it wasn't there. Well, I'm sure that varies from day to day, but, um, the comedians that went up cause I, you know, we, we stuck around, we saw three, I saw three, including you Mm. and, uh, the other guys were great, but you stuck out as, as the most comfortable up there and what you're telling me is that maybe not in this moment you didn't feel like you were at your best but watching you um i don't know how long they had been doing it they were really funny Mm. but if you've been doing this for five years that came through that comfort of being up there like i said the cadence and the timing and the i don't know it's the way that you delivered the jokes was very calm it didn't seem uh, flustered. It didn't seem the, the delivery was well. You know, the delivery mm-hmm. was 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 good, and the jokes were good. I mean, the whole. I don't want to give away your your bits. I don't know how that works, but the the you know you did a bit about the whole Krav Maga thing that was genuinely. I fucking cackled. Oh. I cackled. Thank you. you know, there's not a lot of things, and I think there's there's also something to. Um, you know, we've all been a pos- in a position where we're at home and we're scrolling through our phone, and you can see the funniest thing in the world on your phone, mm-hmm. and you'll kind of go. <laughs> Yeah. And that's the maximum right, that you're right. going to get. But when you're in a room with other people and the name of the game is is laughing at jokes. Yeah. You're 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 it's kind of inhibitions. You're allowed to 
just let loose and genuinely laugh at something harder than you would normally laugh in your personal quiet life. Even, you know, there's a lot of things, especially memes and things like that, that are they're hilarious. Yeah, yeah. But you're never going to laugh like that. Yeah. Sitting on your sofa, you know, watching Netflix or whatever. And the most you're going to let out is is an aggressive nostril breathe. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's the epitome of something that's hilarious, unless you're watching a stand-up or whatever. But when you're in a room mm-hmm. and there's a comedian on stage uh, and they're working the mic and you're with people that are there to laugh, it's a whole other level of, uh, of, I guess, reaction. Yeah, I mean, comedy is very much a, a hypnosis thing because, yeah. because uh, you need the group, you need the room to feel like a, a group, like, like one group group and that doesn't happen very easily and it doesn't happen unless the room is set up that way and the host does his job and you know like for example like the way everyone was sitting kind of far apart from everyone else that kills the group mentality yeah i got that vibe because there's a you know you're standing in a in a position where on one side of you there's a bar the bar is in such a position that the backs of the audience are to you Mm -hmm. and then on the other side of you there's some tables where they're oriented facing the same direction that you're facing. Mm-hmm. And then in front of you, where the crowd would normally be facing you, that's not the case. There's tables where it's all mixed. And they're some facing backs, each yeah, other. Some, yeah, they're facing each other in a circle, and uh, which I think speaks to anybody's ability to do a room like that. You imagine if you could do well there, mm-hmm. then in a proper setting, you're going to have a much better set. Absolutely, yeah. You, that That's a little bit like going to war. You know, you're, you're wrangling people. You're like, you're fighting for parts of the room's attention at any given moment. That's why I was like, at a certain point, I was like, oh yeah, I got to keep like shifting where I'm looking at or otherwise people are going to disconnect. Yeah, I noticed that. You have to, do you, um, I recently did a best man speech and it was entirely nerve-wracking mm-hmm. to stand in front of all these people and to do this. But at least I had the respect and the attention of the crowd because you're at a wedding and it's, you know, you're there to to honor the bride and groom. And mm-hmm. so when it's time for best man and, and matron of honor speeches, everybody does their due diligence and they, they face. And my wife was the, the, the matron of honor. Mm-hmm. And there was some folks that were in the back by the bar. Mm-hmm. And they weren't paying attention, and I could hear them talking while my wife's trying to talk. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's it's nerve wracking to be up there in the first place, and she's obviously nervous. And I'm I don't know what to do to get their attention. They're not hearing the mic. I'm grabbing my drink and I'm smashing the fork against it, but my drink is full, so it's <laughs> it's dulling the sound. I will shatter the drink in my mm-hmm. hand, and I'm going hey hey, and they're not paying attention whatsoever. When you're doing a set, how? Because, like I said, that was incredibly frustrating to me to have been there in that moment when it's this it's this big, important thing. Mm-hmm. You're up there. You're trying to capture the audience. You're trying to, uh, you know, like you said, it's kind of a mass hypnosis. You're trying to get them thinking like you're thinking. How frustrating is that, man? When they're not paying attention, when they're talking, they're having conversations, they're facing the other way. Yeah. That's got to be maddening. Oh, it's awful. It's awful. The worst thing is when you're just about to get on stage and, like, half the crowd leaves. As you're walking up to the stage and you don't have time to like tell yourself like, okay, it is what it is. You don't have time to deal with the disappointment. You're just like, no, fuck it. And then you realize as you're up there like, oh, I'm really pissed off that these people just left. Oh my God, I can only imagine. (laughs) I mean, I had to, I had to piss and I waited till 
uh, after your set, and even the uh, the host, I felt bad leaving my seat while he was doing his thing to go to the bathroom. And then when I came back from the bathroom, I was kind of shuffling, like trying to make it obvious that I wasn't, you know, oh, excuse me, and I, and I shot back to my seat. To me, the obliviousness of some people when they're just holding conversations, and it's like you don't understand how hard to stand up there in the first place is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's you're aware of what's going on. How hard is it to just spin around? Just yeah. show some goddamn decency and to listen to the jokes. You know what I mean? It's. But I, I also get it if it's not like a show. You know, if it's not an event that that uh, you knew was going to be happening or you paid for or whatever. Like this is an open mic. Yeah. We're lucky that there's an audience. Most open mics in the city, it's just other comics, bitter, bitter comics. So this is a treat in a lot of ways. Yeah, I kind of imagine that if you're a comic and you're looking for a scene, it's a kind of rough place to be. Yeah, well, New York City is rough, but it's also great because you get to see great comedians all the time, and you can get on stage three to five times a night if you really want to. But you drove an hour plus to get here. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we're like, like I told you when I first, uh, you know, when I first greeted you, I this is the boonies. We're in the boonies, man. Yeah. It took I there was long, winding, dark roads filled with open fields of nothingness all the way here. Every time my GPS said make a left or make a look, there's I mean there's deer. There's a bundle <laughs> of deer right in front of us right now. In the brewery parking lot. Yeah. I mean this brewery is you could miss it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not it's not necessarily um, what do you do? Because I had an interesting thing happen to me this morning and, and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about it. I, I, yesterday after my son went to sleep, I had a bit of rum mm-hmm. and I decided that it was a good idea to reach out to John Wayne Parr. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, John Wayne Parr is a killer Muay Thai practitioner and he's a stand up guy and a sweetheart and he's really hilarious. He's been on Joe Rogan's podcast and I'm a huge fan, and I said, you know what? Every once in a while, I like to throw a Hail Mary out there for guests. Yeah. See, who can I get, man? Let's shoot the shot. So I decided to shoot the shot at John Wayne Parr. Like I said, had some rum, decided to reach out to John Wayne. And I said, how do you get this guy's attention? So I, I tried to go this sarcastic route where I said things along the lines of, um, you know, listen, John, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm what you would call a person of influence, and, and I think that having you on my podcast would be great for your career. All these all these different things that were mm-hmm. pompous and arrogant sounding, but to me, it was obviously a, a satirical because if you go to my my page, you can see that I'm not a person of influence yeah. and I'm not, you know, followed by much of anybody, you know? So I, I thought that it was just a silly joke that would go over well. Now, I did it well enough that it caught his attention and it was so well done that... He, I don't, I don't want to speak for the man and say that he genuinely believed it, but I, I want to go out on a limb and say there was part of him that believed that, oh, this guy's really a psycho. This guy's <laughs> really that full of himself that he's telling me that my career could benefit from being on his podcast. So he posts it. He posts the conversation. I, I did that around eight thirty at night, and I'm usually in bed real early. And I wake up at one o'clock in the morning to go have a piss. And my phone's buzzing. A hundred notifications, which to me is outlandish. A hundred notifications? What the hell's going on? And the first few things I see is, 
dude, he responded. It's my friends. They're in my message box. They're, oh my God, dude, he responded. <laughs> so I'm going, holy shit. Next thing I know, the the bulk of that 100 notifications is straight up hate mail. Just, mm. you garbage piece of shit. Your podcast sucks. How dare you say it? It was unbelievable how far my joke missed the mark. Yeah. Unbelievable. And I'm by no stretch of the imagination a comedian, but I felt on a very small scale in a way that I could detach myself from by just shutting my phone, I felt what it was like to bomb in a little way. Hmm. And what I'm interested in is, I mean, if you bomb on stage, you're right in front of those people. They're looking at you. You know what I mean? There's no escaping that. For me, if I bomb in some goofy-ass way, I just shut my phone. Yeah. I shut my phone and go, what the hell's going on? That's crazy. I go have a cup of coffee. I mull it around for a little while. I think of something witty to say. I can come back 45 minutes later and say something witty. When you're on stage and you're, you've stepped in shit and, and it's now time. I mean, what the hell is it like to have to pull yourself out of that? I mean, I guess it's it can be a few things. It can be just the crowd. It's like a bad setup, you know, and, and the crowd's not interested. They, they didn't pay money to come see comedy, let alone you. So that's one situation. In that situation, you, you can just shift gears and see if you can get their attention, but it's easier to not take it personally. Then there's another type of situation where you said something either early on or whenever in your set that that people either took the wrong way and now mm-hmm. think you're a bad person and you didn't realize they took it that way so you didn't address it or whatever. Then you can either... Then that's kind of like shot, you know, because if you, if you didn't address it immediately, you kind of lost your credibility as someone who, who uh, understands life (laughs) and what do you try to do you just swallow it and try to grind out the remaining five minutes whatever the hell it is yeah or you can shift gears also and just kind of like talk to the crowd and like you know be like what happened yeah like like, what what did i do what or like whatever um the other thing is if they legitimately don't like you for an opinion that you hold and don't want to uh concede that you're wrong on and you legitimately believe you're either it's a funny joke or they're being sensitive or whatever and that's then you basically are just like in aggro mode because Because it's like, well, fuck you guys. I think you're you're assholes. <laughs> yeah, that's Bill Burr, right, in Boston. Remember that? You ever hear that um that recording where he's in Boston mm-hmm. and they're all just booing the 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 previous comics? I think like Dom Irera was one of yeah. them, and the the crowd's just not giving him anything, just shitting on him. And then Bill Burr just gets on stage and just delivers it. You fucking stupid. Your fucking bridge is stupid. Your team is stupid. You morons. <laughs> Your <laughs> hero like, is Rocky. He's oh, not a real yeah. boxer. Yeah. <laughs> He's not even a real guy. Yeah, yeah, you got yeah. a statue of a fake guy. Oh my god, that was but that's you know sometimes what it takes, right? Is 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 firing back. You know I um like I said, not a not a comedian in any sense, but I'm a firm believer in if you deliver a joke, um I think as long as you're in good conscience that you weren't malicious and and trying to hurt somebody, Mm -hmm. if it just didn't land, it didn't land. You never apologize. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? I, 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 there's a lot of that right now. Yeah. There's a lot of comedians apologizing. Mm-hmm. You, you've been seeing that? Yeah. It's kind of the culture right now. And I guess what's happened is the the lines of whether or not you've actually hurt someone, those lines are what are being blurred. And it's it's become kind of murky to tell whether or not a comedian's joke was malicious uh, or whether it was just fair play. It was just an attempt to make people laugh. Because it's, it's interesting to me yeah. that that line is being blurred. It's you, you have either tried to hurt someone or you have tried to make people happy by making them laugh. And the line between those two things is really blurry. That's interesting. I'm trying. I've been obsessing over this the past few weeks. Um, someone actually reached out to me on Instagram because a post of mine got flagged. Um, and Instagram was like, if you do this again, we're going to take you down. What was it? I'm trying to think which post it was. Um, I'm honestly blanking. I mean, maybe I post. Was it the one I posted on September 11th? No, I don't think it was. Whatever, whatever. I don't even remember which one it was. But the point being is I'm trying to be more deliberate about what I'm saying because I don't I don't have a problem talking about anything, mm-hmm. whether it's rape, the N word, whatever, as long as I'm not using that topic in a hateful way, not even in a hateful way, but I don't want to use it flippantly like. Oh, so you're saying if you're going to have a conversation about that, it's a deliberate attempt to have a conversation about right, it. Right, exactly. Not just some flippant just like, throwaway thing. Like, you know, like the punchline is like, like they were raped. You know, like I don't want to do yeah, that. Yeah, not just a cheap laughs kind of a deal. Exactly. Okay. Because the, 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 the balance between that and someone actually feeling like, oh, well, now I'm reminded of the time I got raped and I'm yeah. just going to let it hang there. Mm-hmm. And that someone might be in pain because I did that and I just didn't even have a point right. to make about what caused them pain. You know, like that seems pointless and, yeah. and unnecessary and also damaging to whatever career I might have. Yeah. So I'm trying to be more uh, thoughtful about that kind of thing. Right, because there is, there is... I don't think that there is a topic on earth and you know I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not pre-thinking this statement too much but I, I really don't think that there's anything that there isn't a time to to take consideration and to talk about the subject mm-hmm. and you know comedy is often a way I, I don't know if a lot of people realize and I think they do comedy is often a way of taking a subject subject and making it more palatable uh and and opening the conversation about a subject that's typically touchy uh it's it's kind of a a, you know a sneaky way of opening the door to Mm -hmm. be able to talk about something that otherwise people would avoid at all costs Mm -hmm. and that's important i think that's important humor is a, a really effective way of kind of hashing out touchy subjects and if you you know, if there's some things that are just off limit, I don't know what it means for society in the long run. You know, I don't know what it means for the subject in the long run. But to me, there's got to be something really negative about not being able to even talk about a thing. Right. So. Yeah. So. So, I mean, I used to kind of look at it as if I was being offensive, I'm kind of fighting the good fight in terms of people being easily offended. You know, I, I thought I was taking a stand against that. And in some way, I, I think 
that used to be valid, like Lenny Bruce, he was doing that for sure. But in the this day and age, it's like a losing battle to fight unless you are you're directly addressing it with a logical and funny argument, or if it's not in comedy, just a logical argument. You know, on a, on a little side note, one of the things I noticed today going through Netflix's uh, trending mm-hmm. is Blazing Saddles was trending. Wow. And I thought, wow, that's... um. Didn't think that would be trending. That's a very racially charged movie mm-hmm. that is, you know, arguably one of the great, you know, at this point, historical comedies. And uh, and I just didn't think, I wonder for what reason is that trending? You know, I wouldn't think that that would be something that today's culture is really uh, absorbing, you know, that they're seeking that out. I mean, they say the, they say the N-word in there, right? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I could see that being ref- refreshing to parts of the country. Yeah, because we are kind of in this moment where it's it's this a lot of a uh, policing of speech, mm-hmm. and that's just kind of, you know, I had a, a potential sponsor reach out to me, and you know, I asked them what would be grounds for you know a termination of contract or whatever, and they said, oh well, you know, uh, any sort of racially charged, uh, you know, discussion or or sexually charged, not sexually, but. Uh, sexist mm-hmm. and then things and and my issue with that was like who is the judge of what is racially charged because if if I have a guest and we want to have a conversation about race well that's just fine I know in my heart I'm not a hateful person who's out there trying to hurt mm-hmm. people so that at the end of the day in my eyes should be all that matters and I know there's subtle nuances and things that you know maybe I don't understand but I don't I wasn't ready to hand over my creative license to somebody who was going to snatch away money or uh, make it in such a way because they were providing the recording system uh, with which I would upload my podcast. So, right, right. you know, if they didn't let that happen, that would be a huge issue. But we are in this society right now, or at least this this culture, uh, especially within the past like three years, I think the past three years, it's really gotten bad where you can't even discuss a thing. You can't even talk about a thing. As soon as it, you utter anything that that resembles a conversation about race uh, and how there's all these subtle nuances and a conversation about gender, especially gender right now, you know, you're sexist, you're racist, you're homophobic, you're this and that. And it's, you know, it to me, it's be right. judged by the content of your speech, not the the topic that you're touching on. Like that joke I have about uh, Caitlyn Jenner. I wouldn't tell that in some that rooms. Funny. That was funny. I just would not tell that in some rooms. It went over well here. I knew I knew it would. (laughs) (laughs) You look around, there's a lot of dudes wearing camo. This is gonna go well. Yeah. Um I do wanna break away from that because I don't wanna take up too much of your time, but Mm. you you lived with monks? Yeah. And it's bizarre. I don't know another person, you know, at all that's lived with monks. What drove you to do that? I mean, I was doing a lot of hallucinogenic mushrooms okay. and acid, and uh, I I kind of was in a depression. I was going to school for creative writing in a very, very liberal school, and I felt extremely alienated from the culture there. And um, I kind of just wanted to find out what the meaning of life was, you know, like what what is, what is this thing we call reality? What is there some deeper truth? Is there some way I can find some satisfaction? Um, because I certainly was not feeling satisfied with, with life at that point. Where did you go? I, uh, I initially, I bought a, like around the world trip ticket. So I went to Mongolia, 
India, Thailand. Um, um, my idea was I was going to find a guru in India. And the other stops were like, okay, whatever. Might as well. Might as well, yeah. Yeah. By the way, the bit about the, uh, what was it, the, was it Thai, a, a Thai prostitute? Oh, it was just uh, Chinatown here. Hilarious. Oh, thanks. Hilarious. Um, um, but yeah, I was in, I was in Nepal. Nepal, okay. And I, uh. I was doing a lot of hash. Okay. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, yeah, wasn't I supposed to be finding a guru? The meaning of life. Yeah. So I, like, started listening to these Buddhist talks, and I ran across this dude named Kobutsu Malone. Um, and he was, like, an anarchist Buddhist teacher. And he, I, I reached out to him, and I was like, hey, uh, I'd like to study with you. And he, he's like, I'm visiting my son at this monastery in Japan, why don't you come visit me there? So I, I changed my ticket. I went to Japan. Um, and I was like his guest at this monastery where he was a guest. So I was a guest of a guest. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, I wound up becoming the student of the master there because he didn't have a place he taught out of. He was kind of semi-retired. Was there any part of you coming from the West, mm -hmm. uh, and, the way that we've been fed Buddhism and, and, and monks and things of that nature is primarily, unless you do your own studying, it's through the media mm -hmm. and the media's portrayal of these things. Was there any part of you that was, what, how, what percentage of you was skeptical going into this whole thing? Skeptical of, of this man, skeptical of the entire thing, or were you going into it entirely open? Hmm. I mean, I'm generally fairly skeptical about... I'm fairly skeptical, but when people make crazy claims like about like, oh, yeah, he's the reincarnation of this guy and like or like he has these superpowers or, or whatever, whatever. He can stick spoons to his body. The magnet man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm fairly skeptical, but I have I have a part of me that is very childlike where I'm, I want to believe like the part of me that grew up with like Dragon Ball Z. Oh, and I'm like, but maybe this if you try hard enough, yes. you know, Hell maybe yes. like what do we know, man? The Absolutely. universe is a very uh, crazy place. Absolutely. Um, but 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 I knew from my own experience that meditation had some interesting effects on my my psyche. Like, okay. Like when I actually that that was my second trip to Asia. The first time I was in Thailand studying Muay Thai and I wanted to be a kickboxer, and I wound up dropping out and living in a Buddhist monastery there for a month. So this was my second like time living in a monastery really, and the first time. Yeah, it was it was intense. Like a like we were talking earlier, um, it is kind of like a psychedelic thing. Like you do go through these crazy intense um, realizations, or like it's almost like a chemical event where you're just like, "Wow, the world is so beautiful," mm. and uh, I get it now, even though you you know. Yeah, you had mentioned on a previous podcast, uh, and I. I I listened to a few of them. It's kind of getting minced at this point. Oh, it was when you did the history of the Buddha. Mm. And um, you talked a little bit about a state that Buddhist monks reach when they go into meditation. And what you had described was something that I had experienced. And it sounds really fucking pretentious to say that, but something that I had experienced and I couldn't like put it into words to Google it. Mm. It was very strange. But what I had done is when I was younger, I was homeless for stupid reasons. I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to get a job. My mom said, you can get the hell out. So I went and at some point was squatting in this abandoned house. And 
you know, on nights that I couldn't sleep, there really wasn't much to do. I didn't have a phone. There was no electricity. There was nothing at all. And I was with my cousin. He's sleeping. So I'm literally just sitting there staring at the back of my eyelids. And sometimes if you close your eyes, you can vaguely see expanding and contracting globular uh, colors, mm-hmm. you know. And predominantly for me, it's like black and kind of a, like a negative purple, like mm-hmm. a, what you would see in a negative photo. And at some point I start focusing on a singular point in my vision and I don't look around. There's just one point. I keep looking at it. And eventually uh, long story short, this point opens up through a gradual process of like, it gets a little bit clearer and a little bit clearer and a little bit more. And then eventually I'm left with this thing that looks like stars Hmm. wheeling in a circular motion as if I'm looking in a first and nothing happens. I don't feel anything i know the second i try to grasp it and think about what's happening it goes away Mm -hmm. and it's actually kind of stressful because it takes actual energy to get there it feels like physically taxing to get there my eyes kind of uh will will tremble i'll be looking up in my vision with my eyelids closed in there and like i said there's nothing to it uh in the sense that i don't feel like i've learned anything but it's very interesting i i there was times where I try to see how long I can hold it, and the longer I hold it, the clearer the stars get, the more intense it, and it actually would even provoke like a stomach turning feeling like you were on a roller coaster. Hmm. That's what it felt like wheeling through outer space. But the second you try to think about it, it goes away. But it was just interesting because what you had described was the only thing close to, you know, what I had experienced. I couldn't even Google the goddamn thing. How do you type in? I close my eyes, and when I close my yeah. eyes, sometimes I see stars. You know, it just doesn't really translate into Google. So that I thought that was really uh, that was really interesting. Yeah, there's these whole uh, series of manuals that the Buddha, Buddhists have written about trying to describe various states of mind and the progression to eventual nirvana and liberation from suffering. Blah blah blah. I mean, I don't know if that's real or not. Um, I don't know if it's just a gradual thing that you can pursue. But, yeah, they even have, they go to the length of, like, oh, you can get into this stage of concentration, which then allows you to do this and then allows you to do this. And, you know, so it is, they do try to map it out in as much detail as they could without any scientific in- instruments or, you know. It's interesting because at some point you, you figure early man didn't have a lot of shit to kick around. And when you live a minimalist lifestyle where you give up all, all physical pr- pursuits, you're kind of left in the same position that I was left in when I was uh, when I was homeless, which is like, well, what's going on behind my eyelids? Mm-hmm. Um, what was the what was the worst part of being there in that experience? Uh, I mean, I'd say emptying the the toilets. They had like just buckets that you. Sh- I mean, you they had a toilet, but underneath was yeah, like a bucket full of shit, of and you'd like bury it. <laughs> that was pretty bad. But, pretty mean fertilizer. But honestly, that was not as bad as waking up at three three thirty in the morning and and like immediately chanting and holy shit. Also begging for money in in the malls, which was like not even they weren't. See, <laughs> that see. I'll say Mall this. Mall is a strong word. No, is that what you're getting at? No, no, no. I'll say this. Like begging sounds like they really wanted money. They didn't need the money. Um. But but I want to say like in 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 a lot of ways it was cult like mm-hmm. um, the lack of sleep the almost anti intellectual culture because it was like don't think just get awakened you know just meditate just meditate just 
it's not about thinking or emotion. It's about um, being in the present. It's always kind of a red flag when you're with an organization that tells you it's not about thinking logically, right, or, mm-hmm. or analyzing what's happening. But I don't think their intentions were negative. I don't think it was they said that to manipulate people. I think that was just a byproduct of living in a group in this archaic um, s- system kind of, of of Buddhist monasteries and uh I, I do think I do think their inten- the master's intentions were good. Well, it probably uh, is. It probably doesn't really work well if you're in a system where you're trying to achieve states of mind where you're clearing your mind and you're not thinking about anything and you're concentrating and you know you're pursuing this lifestyle of minimalism or, or really nothing at all and and analysis is going to be the death of that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the religion or the ideas are bullshit. Mm. It's just like that's gonna that's the antithesis of what they're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. So you you know you do want to avoid that to preserve whatever the goals of the organization are, which doesn't have to be you know something like uh, Scientology where it's drain you of all your cash. That's obviously not what's going on there. So I could see how that was. Um... Well, literally, the idea of having a moment of awakening is a moment where you can see through all the bullshit of your thoughts and descriptions about reality and just experience reality without that um, veil. You know, like literally it, it is important. It's not it's not a. It wasn't an exaggeration they were they were making. It was just they weren't instructing you that it's okay to think and you should think and feel. Um, but in order to have this experience, you need to not be thinking and feeling. Yeah, through, that's through a gradual uh, ability to let go of those thoughts. Right. That's what I was getting at. It's in order to experience what they are saying you can experience. Mm-hmm. You can't be in that state of mind. Right, uh, an analytical state of mind is not going to allow you to have this experience. Um, what was the best part of it all? I mean, I did, I did feel very clear-minded. Like it, I felt very, very present and focused. Probably more so than I have for any extended period of time in my life. It was also nice to be in a community that's all working towards something that's not. Uh, materialistic or like to make somebody money at the top you know yeah yeah that's the interesting thing about monks is that it doesn't seem to be a pyramid scheme like a lot of other organizations where there's a select few at the top that are giving out the orders and and you know steering the ship but they're also making the money Mm -hmm. Uh, that doesn't seem to be that's generally why people I think look more kindly on monks and things they're 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 more of an admirable uh humble kind of an honorable thing to do yeah and i think even in the west we acknowledge that when you know we're not the most religious uh, of the world but we still like i said our interpretation of monks comes primarily from media and even our media portrays them as humble and and selfless and you know for all intents and purposes, not corrupt or, or, you know, not an organization that has a lot of the 
kind of the the downfalls of a lot of you know Christianity or Catholicism or or any of the really big ones where they're kind of a money making machine and they're riddled with um, you know a lot of different problems. Yeah, monks are never. You never hear that, right? It's never like the you know rape in the Catholic Church. You never hear that's never what's going on with monks. Yeah, I mean, I'm I sure I, it's pretty rare. Yeah, I mean you do have that that Buddhist monk in uh, in uh, Myanmar or Burma or whatever. What it happened was, there? Oh, he, they're just like genociding Muslims. Holy crap! Yeah, so that's pretty fucked. That up. seems uh, uncharacteristic. Yeah, it is. But and I mean, there's a long tradition of fucked up Buddhists too. It's not as common in, as in other religions, but there's definitely a lot of historical. But yeah, it was it was great, and and there were cool people. There were people my age from all over the world studying there, and we'd sometimes smoke weed. Um, I wouldn't expect that that you would go there and you would bump into people your age from all over the world. Yeah, it's it was a hip monastery because <laughs> because they had a translator, so it was like oh, it didn't matter what you spoke. Well, I mean, you had to speak some English probably. Okay. Um, but it, it was cool. It was there were people from Denmark, Portugal, um, yeah, and uh, I I did kind of go through a withdrawal like of not being in a community and not having this like focus to my life when I left, and I I kind of wound up being in an even deeper depression than I was in before. Yeah, what does that do to your identity? You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. so much of of how we operate uh, revolves around our our ego and our identity, and it's like I look at those things, like I said, admirable, honorable, humble, all those things. But like, I don't want to fucking be stripped of my identity. I, yeah. I like it. And I guess that's like a selfish, egotistical thing to say. But, you know, sometimes you think about this concept of like uh, of of heaven or returning to the universe after you die and you get stripped of the self and you return back to like the, you know, the community consciousness, the universal consciousness. And I'm like, that's a bummer, man. I like me. I don't want to just get rid of that. That sucks. Yeah. You know, that's kind of a bad feeling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know, man. I I don't I don't think I had that healthy of a sense of self and self-confidence at that point. So it, that was probably not the healthiest base from which to to put myself in that situation. Um would you recommend it? If somebody came to you and, and asked about it, or would you go, if you were being totally honest, would you go, man, you know, it's all right. I wouldn't really go and do the whole, go to another country and get rid of all your... Did you get rid of... No, I didn't get rid of anything. It was just chilling back home? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was still there. I'd recommend it for a week, or if you're in, like, a place in your life where you're like, I just wanted to... You know who you are. You've been through the shit. You know who generally you, you're going to be. Your ego's fully formed. If if you're like yeah if you're like forty fifty you don't have kids and or you, whatever your grandfather and your kids are whatever grown up yeah I'd say it's fine just but, just another thing to experience yeah or even to become a monk I wouldn't say I wouldn't say no one should do that I'd just say like to do it um, once I don't know I don't think I was mentally solid enough do you feel like you would ever go back and do that. Um, I mean, I can see doing it for a month when I'm like, or or even longer when I'm like much older or if, if for some reason I don't have a family and uh, I would just want a community, you know, and like, sure, why not? Is there any part of you that could even entertain a scenario where you commit to that at some point for the rest of your life? 
I mean, see, the problem is I'm very much a, I like having my freedom. I like, I like being able to do what I want when I want to. Um, so that, I don't like that aspect, but I also like if I'm, if it's that or homelessness, then I definitely choose that. Yeah. That's an interesting thing because I, you know, everybody's circumstances are different, but when you go to New York city and you see all these homeless people and you go, I don't know what it would take to get to a place like what you've described, but those places exist. And if you're out here on the streets, you know, winter is coming. Mm -hmm. It's about to be Game of Thrones in this bitch. I'm going to, you know, Nepal or I'm getting out of here. Or Chuangan Monastery in Carmel. There's a beautiful Buddhist monastery. Is that the one that's, that's the one up here? Yeah. It's right near here. Um, I guess people, I mean, it's, what percentage of people even know that exists before you mentioned it i had no idea it's a great place there's a bunch of places in new york actually in this area um all right so i wanted to move on because you actually do a podcast podcast called the uh, weird ball podcast who's Mm -hmm. your co-host uh andrew harms and you guys do uh kind of a, a humorous take on history which it's a really good podcast i listened to several episodes i really enjoyed it especially the one about the buddha and um I just think, you know, what I'm doing is I'm just talking to people that I think is interesting. What you're doing is you're taking on this endeavor where you have to know your shit. You can't do an entire podcast, whether it's 40 minutes or, you know, up to an hour and 20, whatever it is, of of history when you haven't done your research. If I tried to do that, I wouldn't get past the first episode before I felt guilty about feeding my audience a bunch of bullshit because I didn't do my homework. Yeah. So I, I think that's a, that's pretty interesting. What made you go the historical route? I mean, I just, I I have a passion for learning and I feel like history is such a broad thing. You know, like I could be like history of mathematics. I could do the history of woodworking. I could do the history of anything, you know? Mm. So it's like, I, I, I love, I love learning about new stuff and it's an excuse to have people who are experts in, in things come on the podcast and teach me, give me some private lessons. But I also wanted to make it comedy based just because that's what I do and I like working out that muscle, and um, I think that's the best way to get people down to come to shows. How long have you been doing it now? Uh, the show? Yeah. I want to say like two or three years, but I took a like a six month break. Um, it wasn't it wasn't always history based. It was it was kind of crazy before. It was like. I don't even know how to describe it. We would video it and do weird shit where I'd like have people egging me or I'd be dressing. <laughs> I got covered in maple syrup one time. On you the do streets. a fair bit of skits. Yeah. Do you still do a lot of the skits? I mean, right now I'm focusing on, on re redoing this podcast, refocusing this podcast. So I'm, I'm my, my eyes are there and also just on stand up. Cause I, I was watching a lot of the skits and they're really well done. They're really well shot as well. There was one where it was kind of um, looked like it was a jujitsu kind of a thing where somebody had you in an <laughs> yeah. ankle lock and he's yeah, like smelling so your. Fuck. I was crying at that. I was. Oh, it was man. really well shot. It was really hilarious. And uh, you know, as far as production quality goes, it looked like anything you could see uh, on on any kind of big name site or show or anything like that. So I thought that was. You know, you seem to have your fingers in a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Tr- I'm I mean, that's a, a blessing and a curse, you know, I'm trying not to uh, overextend myself. That's always been a problem of mine, but yeah, I enjoy doing the sketches. I did that on, uh, we shot that on tour, um, up in Sudbury, <laughs> on Sudbury. Terry, oh, Ontario, okay. some mining town where I was doing a show. 
Yeah, the whole podcasting thing is, it's old, but it's new mm-hmm. in the sense that there's no, it's still very much the wild, wild west. There's a lot of people that came before us and they kind of laid the ground plans out, you know, so you can, there's a formula to follow. But I think for the most part, there's still no exact recipe to success. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're certainly not going to be able to, there's a lot of podcasting, um, what would you call these things? Seminars. Mm. And, you know, pretty much each one of them starts out with something that sounds like find your category, find your niche and stay in it. And immediately to me, that's a problem because I'm not an expert in any one thing. And my entire purpose for doing the podcast is it's an excuse for me to have long form conversations with people that I think are interesting. Yeah, that's all I want to do. But the problem with that is my interests change all the time. Mm-hmm. So why would I limit myself to a thing? So it's it's kind of interesting that uh, in this wild, wild west of the Internet that, I mean, it's nice that there are podcast seminars. It's nice that somebody's trying to give people guidance and show them a way. But it's also in some ways kind of silly, right? Yeah. Because it's like anybody who I talk to is like, I don't fucking know what's going on. I'm yeah. just winging it and it's working out. You know, and that seems to be it is just stay consistent uh, and just work hard at it. You Mm -hmm. know, try to put out the best thing, whatever the thing is. Do the best version of that that you can. And uh, other than that, there's no real solid ground, you know, groundwork for this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say... I would say, yeah, as long as it's generally the same kind of thing over and over again. It's like, yeah, fine. Weird Ball in the beginning was all over the place, though. It was like, let's shoot a sketch and put the audio for that in, and then let's fucking improv three different sketches, and then also let's talk about spirituality, and let's... let's it was, like, re- ridiculous. But people like it. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, the, the the podcast is good. Uh, you know, it's it's... I don't think there's any wrong or, or right way to do it. I think the only thing is like you mentioned whether or not you're overextending yourself Mm -hmm, exactly you you know just put yourself in a position where you can continually do it like i'm doing three to four episodes a week in some cases oh wow and uh i don't know that just doesn't i'm doing it over skype though i'm sitting in my house you know what i mean it's it's um it's actually easier than a lot of people put on but it is interesting when people i've been talking to a lot of people that are having success in it and you know like i said they don't know what the hell's going on or what the formula is all you ever get is stay consistent and care about your product enough to try to make it good yeah so it is an interesting thing but um all right andrew i don't want to take up any more of your time it's getting late here i know you got a oh jesus christ it's 10 18 um and i know you got a migraine how's it how you holding up over there buddy i'm, I'm feeling i'm just tired right, now man. the migraine's gone but i'm fucking exhausted well i really appreciate you doing this man uh it was good to see you do your stand up and it was good talking to you where can people find you uh, weirdball.com just and search weirdball on any podcast thing and that's about it um yeah I got a newsletter on my website if you want to go see me when I'm on tour planning a European tour in April and if they type type in your name into uh, Instagram or they're gonna find you there as well yeah and uh and that's about it all right brother well, I appreciate Thanks, it Dave. thank you very it was much fun. thank you brother we'll do it again sometime how do Hell I yeah. uh, turn all this stuff up thank you guys for tuning in this is episode 18 with Andrew Steiner I'm your host David Corbo and thank you for listening to where I belong peace